Well, I love that we get to be together continuing our series, looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, discovering how God is resetting our lives and the world. So today our text is gonna be all about how Nehemiah handles the haters and the critics and the trolls that uh, frustrate everything that he and his people are doing as they live out God's mission. Maybe you've dealt with people like that. So I, I am a fan of Jim Gaffigan. I like to listen to the comedian Jim Gaffigan with my kids. Maybe you've heard of him. You know, he's really funny if you have like kind of the intellectual capacity of a fifth grader, which I do. It's one of my many gifts. My wife is so appreciative of that. But the thing I love about Jim Gaffigan is that while like so many comedians make a living really just kind of being vile and mean and gross, uh, Jim Gaffigan is not like that, you know? And so I was Googling him recently and I came across a blog post that had the title, literally, I hate Jim Gaffigan. I was like, what's up with that? Why? What's the matter with people these days? Like, what's there to hate about Jim Gaffigan? He makes silly jokes about donuts and Hot Pockets. So I read it and it's like three sentences long. And it's just, it's like just super mean. It's like blasting Jim Gaffigan out of the water. And the, the person who wrote it said, quote, his jokes make me want to puncture my eardrums with a screwdriver. And the comments were even worse, just dozens and dozens of comments saying things like, yeah, we hate him. And every time I hear him, I want to puke. And some people were even getting really personal saying that he should have never had kids. And there was one guy, one person who commented who said, guys, Jim Gaffigan is funny. You know, why are you being so mean? And then the commenters all turned on that guy. What, have you ever wondered, like, what's up with that? What, what's going on with people? And may you, maybe you know people like this. People who push your buttons. People who talk about you behind your back. People who get on soapboxes and spread rumors without bothering to check the facts. People who will misinterpret what you say and what you do in order to make you look bad. People who terrorize others, bully others, mock others. Like when good things happen to you, uh, enemies get jealous. When bad things happen to you, they'll shame you. They suspect the worst in you. They look down their nose at you and they write you off and dismiss you. These people are our enemies, our enemies. And they can't be reasoned with. The more you try to understand and talk things out, the more they take advantage of you, the more you explain yourself, the more they just twist your words. You could put it this way. An enemy, a real enemy, is someone who loves to hate. An enemy is someone who loves to hate. And Christians, like people who follow Christ, we have to figure out how to handle the haters and the critics and the trolls. Because we have a spiritual enemy, someone that Jesus calls an adversary, Satan, who works through demonic and human agents to literally destroy and deconstruct what God's doing in the world and in you. So, here we come to this point in our study of Nehemiah. We've been looking at how God's resetting the world, um, resetting his people by bringing them out of exile because of their sin, uh, where they've been for 70 years. And so far, they've been kind of reestablishing life, rebuilding life out of the rubble 
They've rebuilt the temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel. They've recentered their lives around God's word under the leadership of Ezra. And last week we talked about how Nehemiah came from Babylon to Jerusalem and saw that the walls were still just piles of burned out rubble from when the Babylonians came and torched the place. And he said, come on, you guys, you, you have forgotten who you are. You've been stepping over the rubble of your city for so long that you actually believe you are a people in disgrace when you're not. You're a people of promise. And Nehemiah is thinking about some of the promises that God has made, like through uh, the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 33, check this out. Uh, This is one of the promises God made to his people while they were in exile. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all their sin they've committed against me and will forgive them for all their sins of rebellion against me. And get this, he says, then this city, Jerusalem, will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all the nations on earth. Do you know what this promise is saying about God's people? Uh, What Nehemiah was saying is, guys, it's time to live the mission of God. And for us, it's time to live the mission of God. And what we're going to see in Nehemiah chapters 3, 4, and 6, we're covering those three chapters, what we're going to see is that when God's people live God's mission, we will face opposition. When God's people live God's mission, we will face opposition. So we're covering these three chapters today, three, four, and six. We're skipping five for now. We'll come back to it next week. And in our three chapters today, what we're going to see are five little vignettes, five kind of mini stories that are all about opposition that we can expect. And we're going to, like each one of these little vignettes is going to show us two things. Number one, a tactic of the enemy so that we can recognize some of the predictable patterns and strategies that our enemy uses. Number two, it's going to give us some wisdom for how to handle our enemy as we live out the mission as God's people. Are you ready? Okay. Well, here are the five tactics. Uh, The enemy divides us, dismisses us, exploits us, discredits us, and deceives us. Divides, dismisses, exploits, discredits, and deceives. Now, we don't have time to go through all five of these in detail, so we're really going to focus on the first three. We're starting with how the enemy divides us, how the enemy divides us. So grab a Bible, Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah follows Ezra in the Old Testament. Nehemiah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building out as far as the tower of of the hundred, which they dedicated and as far as the tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. And we could keep going, but let me just save you some time. Basically, this entire chapter just continues on in this list. What it's doing is describing who does what in this wall building project. There's the name of a person followed by the section that they're responsible for. And if we were going to sit like with this chapter for just 15 or 20 minutes, which would be awesome if we could, we would start to notice some things. 
that, that really jump out at us, that are really interesting. So first of all, this list gives us a counterclockwise tour around the entire city as the wall is being built. You'll notice that it starts and ends with the Sheep Gate. Got a picture right here. It's this cool little like train model rebuild of Nehemiah's Jerusalem. Um, uh, it's, it's really cool to see. You can kind of picture the, the tour. Uh, we would also notice that the project is divided up into 41 sections. Every section is repaired by like a different team, right? And we would notice how the new wall was nowhere the size of the old wall that was torn down. Why? Well, because the city was just a lot smaller. There were a lot fewer people there. Um, and, and also, and, and more importantly, Here's, here's one of the key things we would notice. We would notice that there's incredible variety among these teams that are all working together on the wall building project. There's priests and religious workers. Uh, there are politicians. Some of the teams are just like led by neighborhoods where everyone who lived near a section of the wall would kind of take care of that section where they lived. There were business leaders uh, like perfume makers and goldsmiths who took time off of work to focus on this project. There were hired hands from around the city. There were men and women who uh, pitched in, young and old, rich and poor. And also we would notice that there are people of very different political persuasions working together. So uh, there are guys like Baruch, uh, who it specifically says was like zealous. Uh, he was all about the wall building mission, totally on board. But there are also some upper class nobles from a village called Tekoa who are doing the work, but it, it tells us that they're not putting their back into it. Or in Hebrew, they're not putting literally their shoulders to the work. Now this could be because they were like snobby and didn't want to get their hands dirty, but more likely it's that they just weren't bought into Nehemiah's leadership. They weren't on board with the direction that they were going and the decisions that they're making. The reason why we will find out later is that the guy in charge, or at least he thought he was in charge, he acted like he was in charge of Jerusalem was this, this guy Tobiah. And when Nehemiah showed up, uh, that like, that just, it, there was a lot of tension there. So let me just, like with all that in mind, let me ask you a question. Can you think of a place that you have been where God calls people who are different, different ages, genders, socioeconomic statuses, even different political persuasions to, to contribute different gifts into, toward like one mission? Anybody? It's the church. This is a, a great picture of what the church looks like today. First uh, Corinthians 12, four through six, we get an idea of, of how this plays out today as we follow the mission of God as his people. It says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. And what we need to realize about the enemy is that the enemy is all about dividing God's people 
dividing God's people, keeping people divided and separate, keeping the people of different races afraid of one another, keeping people in the church of different genders from listening to one another, keeping the old folks judging the young folks and keeping the the young folks blowing off the old folks, keeping the red voters and the blue voters just arguing with one another about all these things that are important, but missing the most important thing, losing track of the mission of God. In John 17, this is so cool. We get to listen in on Jesus's prayer. Like Jesus is talking to the Father about us. And it's amazing to pay attention to what he actually prays for. Uh, And I'll show you the words here. John 17, 11, Jesus's prayer is this. Protect them, he's talking about us, the church, by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus is praying God's protection over us from division, the division of the enemy. And Jesus isn't praying that we would all think the same and act the same and talk the same and vote the same and look the same. But he was praying that we would figure out when it's time to lay down our individual rights, our lifestyles, our preferences, and yes, even sometimes our values in order to work on what matters most, which is loving God, loving our neighbor, and making disciples, students of Jesus on every nation on the planet. That's the mission that God calls us to. The enemy wants to keep us divided to get us off of that mission, but we have to come together. We have to come together. And here's the thing, you know, that everybody gets wrong about unity. You know, when the world talks about unity, what it's talking about are people kind of tolerating one another, agreeing to disagree, you know? But Christian love and unity is so much more powerful than tolerance. So much more powerful because the key here is not even that we move toward one another so we can kind of hold hands and and get warm fuzzies and sing kumbaya and forget about all the things that make us different. It's that we move toward the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus is the bullseye on the target. And the closer we come to the mission of Jesus, the closer we come to one another. And if I'm loving and obeying Jesus and you're loving and obeying Jesus, it doesn't matter where we're starting from. What matters is that those things don't make us different anymore. They make us better together. So we have to stop letting the enemy divide us and instead come together around the mission of Jesus. So that's chapter three. That's, that's all of it right there. God's people are off to the races, you know, they're building the wall, they're excited. And then we see what happens. We see that, that their action triggers the enemy. And we're going to see that if the enemy can't divide God's people, they're going to dismiss us because the enemy loves to dismiss us. Uh, Nehemiah chapter four, verse one, then Sanballat, heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the, Jew, the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, which was like his militia, he said, uh, what are these feeble Jews doing? Can they restore their wall? Can you hear the sarcasm? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? 
And then Tobiah, we talked about him just a minute ago, the Ammonite, he chips in. He, he was at his side and he said, what they're building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. So, so these are like the, the main trolls. These, these are the trolls of God's people. Sanballat and Tobiah, Sani and Toby, whatever, you know. Sanballat, we read about him in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, he's the governor of Samaria, which borders Israel to the north. He's an idol worshiper, but he also pays lip service to Yahweh at the temple. And he is all about the Persian empire. Why? Because he gets rich because of the Persian taxation, which was really heavy on God's people. And he's all about keeping Jerusalem down keeping them defenseless, keeping them disgraced. Why? Because that means that he and his goons can just walk all over them and and run over the place. And then there's Tobiah. We read about Tobiah in Ezra and Nehemiah and in the book of Zechariah. He's more of an insider. Uh, He's probably from one of the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Gad. And he's serving as the Persian appointed uh, like governor in Amman, uh, which is to the east of Israel. And he had huge influence in Jerusalem until Nehemiah shows up with a deputy badge from King Artaxerxes over in Persia. And Tobiah was not happy with Nehemiah. With Nehemiah. I mean, you could cut the political tension with a knife. I mean, he grew up in exile just like Nehemiah. And here's the deal. Uh, if you read through all this stuff, what you would notice is that Tobiah, is, like he really, really wants to have access to the temple. Not so he can worship God, but so that he could literally like set up a man cave and make that like his personal storage closet. No, I'm not even joking. We're going to read about that in Nehemiah 13. And so he name drops and he bribes his way into Jerusalem. And, and <laughs> lots of people in Jerusalem were really on team Tobiah. So this is the situation Nehemiah is coming to. And like, what's the problem with these guys? Why are they so trollish? Why are they hating on God's people? And what we see is it's not because they didn't want Jerusalem to exist. They tolerated them in their city. They tolerated the exiles. They tolerated their religion and their worship at the temple. They even financially chipped into that. What they wanted was for the Jewish people to fit into their narrative and their agenda. That's what they wanted. As long as they did that, they were fine. But it's when the Israelites began to take God at his word, living out his mission, that's when they had a problem. That's when they had a problem. Let me just ask you, can you think of any situation today where powerful people with their own agendas try to make the church fit into their box. They may claim to be Christians. They may quote Bible verses, usually way out of context. But then when the church stands up and takes God at his word, they're triggered. See, the enemy dismisses us. Sanballat calls the Jews feeble, which means like frail or wretched in Hebrew. And he asks all these sarcastic questions like, oh, they're going to restore their little wall, you know? And ironically, yes, (laughs) they will. And what he was basically saying was like, you stupid, pathetic people. You, do you really think you're going to make something of yourselves? You're delusional. 
That's what he's saying. He's writing them off. And listen, when we begin to live the mission of God, when we take God at his actual word, we are going to upset the agendas of the people around us. People in our families, maybe. People in our government, maybe. Maybe even people in our own churches. There are going to be people who maybe used to be friends or allies and they're going to underestimate us and mock us and write us off. But you know what? What this shows us is we have to do it anyway. We have to live on mission with God because the mission of God is so much more glorious than they can wrap their minds around. And we, we see Nehemiah do this. I mean, Nehemiah, he knows who he is. He knows he's one of God's people and he's so secure in the love for, for God that he doesn't defend himself or justify himself or shoot back. He just takes it to God in prayer. Look in verse four of chapter four with me. His prayer is, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Have you ever felt despised? Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. When people dismiss you, remember who you really are and turn them over to God. Nehemiah knows that like, the vengeance belongs to God. And, he, and he, his prayer is basically, God, do whatever it takes to get them to see that they're not just against us, but they're really against you. And, and we have to remember that Christians have many responsibilities, but vengeance is never one of them. But still, this is saying sometimes the only thing that's going to get our enemies to wake up is a taste of their own medicine. But God is the only doctor who's wise enough to prescribe it. So the enemy wants to divide us, wants to dismiss us. And when those don't work, he's going to turn up the heat. He's going to start to exploit our vulnerabilities. So in verse 6 of chapter 4, the story continues. And we come to our third vignette. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. I love that. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So what's been happening is the wall is like halfway done or so. It's been built up all around the city and that makes the haters really mad. See, nothing triggers trolls like progress. And literally in every direction, enemies were plotting acts of terrorism to stop the work. There were Sanballat and the Samaritans, or the Samarians in the north. There were the Arabs in the south. There was Tobiah and the Ammonites to the east. And there was Ashdod to the west. And what did Nehemiah do? Look with me in verse 9. This is so key. It says, but we prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. He did two things. He prayed and he posted a guard. And this is what it looks like for for God's people to be on mission. When we encounter opposition, we are to forge a partnership between heaven and earth, God and his people. And this points us to two profound truths. Number one, 
we can't do anything worthwhile without God, so we pray. We can't do anything worthwhile without God, so we pray. But the second thing is that God's normal way of working in the world is working through normal people. So we work. We pray and we work. And what does this process look like? Well, in verse 10, tell, like, it'll show us that they are just kind of overwhelmed with the sheer workload of this project. Look in verse 10 with me. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble. We can't rebuild the wall. Back in 2nd uh, sorry, Second Kings chapter 10, we read how the Babylonian army literally, after defeating them, tore the wall down brick by brick. And um, if you've ever seen kind of a topographical map, or maybe you've been to Jerusalem, you, you'd see that it's built up on top of a hill. And so what this meant is that the walls were, were not just kind of sitting in nice little piles. They were literally giant piles of rubble in the bottom of a valley. And to, to like, Uh, rebuild the wall, you had to carry the rubble up brick by brick all the way up the mountain. And the wall they were building was 13,000 feet long, which is like two and a half miles. It was 40 feet high and about eight feet thick on average, which I've done the math. That's about four million cubic feet of stone. And I don't know if you've ever lifted up a cubic foot of stone. It's about 150 pounds. So what they Here's their job. How was your job today? Their job is to carry 150 pounds from the valley floor to the top of a mountain four million times. No dump trucks, no backhoe loaders, maybe a few donkeys. And we read also in uh, Nehemiah chapter 5 that all this was happening in a drought. So they were hungry, weak, and overwhelmed. And when you're hungry and weak and overwhelmed, fear gets amplified. Anxiety goes through the roof. And that's what we see happen in verses 11 and 12. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. So these are like rumors. They're they're saying, this is what the enemy's saying. They're planning terrorist attacks on us. And then it says, then the Jews who live near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they'll attack us. So these are like, people in the neighboring villages around Jerusalem coming and giving a report. Sanballat and his goons are armoring up and they're going to attack at any moment. And we know that Nehemiah and the Judeans were praying. We already looked at that. But then what happens next, this is so cool. It tells us the kind of the tactical details of how they posted a guard. This is like, this is fun. It's fun, at least for me. So verse 13 Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. So the wall isn't finished yet. There are, you know, there's kind of these low spots in the wall. Why is that a problem? Because it's vulnerable. They're vulnerable for attack in those low spots. So here's what Nehemiah knows about the enemy. And this is what we need to understand as well. The enemy exploits our vulnerabilities. The enemy comes at us, not where we're strong, but where we're weak. The enemy doesn't come after people who are strong at the top of their game. He goes after people who are exhausted, under-resourced, and overwhelmed. 
later on, um, one of Jesus's followers, Peter, picks up on this, on this tactic of the enemy. And he writes, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In other words, the devil, our ultimate enemy, is on the hunt for vulnerable people. And there are individuals in our families, in our churches, in our schools, in our community who are financially, physically, emotionally, and spiritually vulnerable. And the enemy loves to go after those people. So what does Nehemiah do? Well, he takes some of the builders, he puts weapons in their hands, and he says, you're the wall. You're the wall. And there are times and places where certain people of God are to become a wall to surround and protect the weak and the vulnerable. When we do this by giving of our time and our money and our attention, we do this by serving in children's ministry and student ministry and in senior ministry. We do this by checking in on one another. Parents, we do this by praying for our kids every day. We do this by feeding people who are homeless, by visiting prisoners, praying for the persecuted, caring for the sick, married people. We do this by encouraging and serving our spouse when we realize that they have an area of insecurity or need. And then, then Nehemiah gives his famous Braveheart speech. You know, Braveheart, it's like, it's an old movie now, which is crazy, but it's, I try to look for newer movies and I just couldn't find it. He gives this speech at the end, you know, freedom, that, that speech, you have to watch it sometime. And, and here's what he says, uh, Nehemiah chapter, chapter four, uh, verse 14. After I looked these things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And once again, we see this incredible theological truth. The normal way God works in the world is by bringing heaven and earth together. God fights our enemies for us by fighting through us. He protects the vulnerable for us by protecting them through us. Paul picks up on this in his famous letter to the Ephesians. He's teaching the church about how to handle their, like their very real enemies. And he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. He's talking about Satan and his demonic minions in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God so when the evil day comes, get this, you may be able to stand your ground. Like, guys, we may not be able to stop the enemy from attacking vulnerable people in our families or our communities, but through prayer, through looking out for one another, we can make sure that when he does attack, he is not going to have a good day. And what we see in the rest of chapter 14 is that it worked. It worked. And we see this mindset like shift begin where they're, they're discouraged and they were scared and they become organized and prepared and everything in, about their lives becomes about finishing 
the mission. So now we come to chapter five. Uh, Mark Deering is going to be covering that last or next week. It's going to be this incredible story of how God uses Nehemiah to speak truth to power about the ways the rich people are taking advantage of the poor, but we're not going to cover that now. We're going to go ahead to chapter six. And we're, if we had time, we would look at two more vignettes about how uh, the enemy works, how the enemy discredits us and how the, the enemy deceives us. We don't have time for those, unfortunately. So uh, we're going we're gonna to start to bring this to a close. We've been looking at these tactics of how the enemy works and we've gleaned some wisdom for how to handle the enemy. And we have to remember what this story is all about. It's all about dealing with the enemies of God as we live out his mission. So, you know, what does this look like? Well, I was talking to um, someone a while back who um, is, he, at the time, he was nine months sober after decades of nearly drinking himself to death. And I was encouraging him and I was so proud of him. But he said something that struck me. He said, I found out who my real friends are. I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, all of his friends, even people in his family who were, used to be his drinking buddies are now treating him like an outsider. You know, they're writing him off. They're, they're not supporting him or encouraging him. They don't invite him over anymore. They're, what, they're, what they were saying is basically, all right, we'll see how long this lasts. So how do we handle people like this? People who divide us, who dismiss us, who exploit us. Well, you know, maybe you've heard it said, in order to understand your enemy, you should walk a mile in his shoes. And this is kind of a good plan because if he's still your enemy after that, at least he's a mile away and you have his shoes, right? But seriously, I don't know. I don't know what kind of enemies you might be facing in your life right now. Maybe someone in your past who just doesn't get how much Jesus has changed you Maybe someone close to you who can't seem to grasp how much their words have been hurting you. Maybe someone here listening to this is facing a powerful spiritual enemy right now. A demonic attack or just discouragement or lies from from the devil. Or maybe you're facing down the enemy of sickness or death. You personally or someone you're close to. Well, Nehemiah gives us two It's very simple, but very powerful prayers. The first one, the first prayer is, remember our enemies. Lord, remember our enemies. He prays in chapter six, verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they've done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So, So part of the good news for followers of God is that he will never forget what you've been through. He'll never forget what you've been through at the hand of human enemies. And he will especially never forget what we've been through and what the world has been through at the the hand of our ultimate enemies of Satan and death and sin. The, The message of the gospel for people dealing with enemies, we find it in 1 Corinthians 15 then the end will come, and this is a promise, 
when he hands over, that's Jesus, hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after, get this, he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And this frees us up as God's followers, to be courageous when we face opposition. It frees us up to give vengeance of our human enemies over to God. And God, you sort them out. And it frees us up to even begin to follow Jesus' teaching where we start to respond to our enemies with forgiveness and kindness, just like he did for us when we are his enemies. So we pray, Lord, remember our enemies. The other prayer is Lord, help us to live out the mission. I love how nonchalant Nehemiah is uh, at the end here in Nehemiah chapter six, verses 15 and 16. Get this. He just like passively says, so the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul. And in case we didn't do the math, he says in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. After 140 years of disgrace, they rebuild the wall in 52 days, seven and a half weeks. That turned some heads. That got their attention. And when God's people live out God's mission, the world will realize that God is doing something amazing. And the best way for us to shut the mouths of our enemies is to live in the mission of God. And this is saying, God's gonna help us. God's gonna help us. So that's what we pray. And let's pray this prayer together. Lord, help us live in such a way where we're living on mission where we're courageous in the face of opposition. And God, let us do it in such a way that totally changes uh, our enemy's perception of you and us. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.